Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and all the ways that you have revealed yourself to us, particularly uh, and specifically in your word. And so today I pray that as we continue to work our way through Luke, that you'll give us wisdom and insight and help us to understand uh, these truths that you've given to us so that we can know uh, the meaning and purpose of our lives and uh, have the hope uh, that comes through our Lord Jesus uh, and the kingdom that he is uh, going to establish uh, in the days to come. And so we ask all this and uh, pray all this for his great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, last week we left off uh, right in chapter 16. We're going to pick up in verse 19 today. Uh, before we do that, I want to talk about this handout that I gave you. And uh, in your notes um, today, we're going to be on page 29. Uh, there we'll start with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, a story y'all probably know well. But before we do that, I want to talk about this handout um, that's out there. Everybody make sure you got one. Um, it's called the Journey Narrative, a possible chiastic organization. One of the things y'all know, and I've mentioned this several times, is struggling to know how in the world Luke has organized this material. Um, and every commentary you read on it, they say, um, well, just like this morning, I was reading, uh, I was, I was, or yesterday morning, I was reading the commentary on uh, the things we're going to get into into chapter 17. And every commentary I read said, uh, these next four episodes are completely unrelated and it's almost impossible to know how they're fitting together, you know? And I think, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I remember what Tom Murray used to say about the commentators. He used to say, you know, the commentators are just commentators, right? Um, never trust anybody that's got more letters after their name than they've got in their name, right? So, um, you know, I read that and I think that can't be the right way. And so in the meantime, I've been reading this book by a guy named Paul Borgman. I don't know anything about this guy. Uh, I just I found his book when I was doing research on um, resources for Acts, uh, Luke and Acts to study it. This the book is called The Way According to Luke, hearing the whole story of Luke and Acts. He's one of the very rare people that has devoted an entire book simply uh, talking about how does Luke and Acts fit together. How does it all work out? And so um, before I get into the chart that I've given you today, we've already talked about one of these patterns. And this is in your notes back on page not eight. On page eight, I've got a basic outline, very basic outline for Luke and Acts. Because as, as you all remember, uh, we're, we're treating this as a single work. Uh, it's very clear that Luke intended Luke and Acts to be read together as one single work. And as we said very early on, the reason it's divided into two is probably because uh, Luke ran out of papyrus or, or the writing material that he was writing on and had to finish the second half of, of his work, uh, the Acts, uh, on, on the second part of it. So there on page eight, I've got this outline and most... Most commentators that you read uh, dealing with Luke and Acts, they all see this similar pattern here. Uh, it's, it's a key, what's called a chiastic pattern. Um, chiastic comes from the letter key in Greek, which is, you know, roughly synonymous with our letter X. And the reason it's called that is if I hold this up and you look at it, you can see half of the letter X in that pattern, right? And that's why it's called chiastic, if that makes sense. Uh, some people call it uh, a mirroring pattern. Um, I'll read some quotes from this Borgman in just a minute. But the, the whole uh, work of Luke and Acts uh, seems to be developed around this chiastic pattern. So you can see that there are, uh, in that outline there on page 8, I've got six steps that lead down to the central idea uh, of the book or the, or the central uh, focal point of Luke and Acts, and that's the ascension of Jesus in Luke 24, 50 through Acts 1, 11. The ascension of Jesus is kind of the pivot that moves us from the gospel to uh, the book of Acts. And so you got six steps down to that seventh line, right? So Jesus is in Galilee, goes to Samaria, then Judea, Jer uh, Jerusalem, uh, crucifixion. Then we get to the resurrection and ascension in the middle. And then 
the latter half of it, it simply moves out. It mirrors that in reverse order. It begins in Jerusalem. Uh, it heads out from uh, uh, Jerusalem. It goes to Judea and Samaria. And ultimately, we wind up uh, in the ends of the earth, uh, the kingdom being proclaimed um, all the way as far as Rome. Uh, Paul is out uh, preaching the gospel there. So um, it's organized around this geographic movement. First part moves us toward Jerusalem. Second half moves us away from Jerusalem. So uh, we've already seen that kind of patterning in the larger structure. And so the handout that I've given you today, if you'll take a look at that, what this guy Borgman has done is, is he has seen this pattern in the uh, journey narrative of Luke. Th- that's the section we're in. It starts in 951, where Jesus sets his face to head toward Jerusalem, and it ends in 1944. And I've been reading this book since we started the study in the fall. And at first I'm thinking, uh, I don't know, I think this guy is seeing things where there's nothing. You know, it's that kind of thing. And I've read it more and I've read it more and I've looked at it and looked at it. And now I'm thinking, ah, I, th- I really think he's on to something. Because this is the first time I've seen a pattern that makes some sense out of the organization uh, of this whole section. And, and one of the things that hit me as I was reading it, and, you know, this is so dumb. But as Westerners, we always think linearly, yeah. right? One thing after another. Many cultures don't think that way. Yeah. You know, they, they, they think in these... Uh, mirrored patterns and whatnot. And that's very true in the scriptures. These, these patterns show up all over the place. Uh, when I was at Dallas, I got to hear a guy named Robert Longacre, who was uh, a linguist with Wycliffe Bible translators. He was one of the early linguists that helped develop the whole you know, theory of Bible translation. Just did incredible work during his life. And I, I got to hear him do a series of lectures showing how... Um, all these patterns in Genesis, almost every major narrative in Genesis follows this chiastic pattern and even into Exodus. So Moses was using these patterns and whatnot. And so here in this in this middle section in Luke, um, and, and I've given you this so you can read these passages and explore them and I'll show you how to how to work through this. Uh, first of all, the, the quotes up there at the top of that, I've just given you uh, some of his basic um, definitions because I, th- I think they're very good about chiasmus and, and what that is and, and so forth. I'm not going to read through all of that. But, you know, the basic idea is that you're, you're working toward kind of a bullseye target thing, right? You're working towards it. And then as you work away from it, you're repeating all of those steps, but you're repeating them in inverse order. And so the thing that really, that really, I thought, oh, wow, okay, he really may be onto something here is in, uh, if, if we start in, in the outer rings there, so line number one at the top and then number one prime down here at the bottom, those both contain similar themes. And uh, so in that first line, 951 through 1024, this is where Jesus turns to go to Jerusalem. And if you remember, um, the disciples, as they go into Samaria, there's a town in Samaria, they reject Jesus. And uh, James and John want to call fire down out of heaven, right? And then immediately after that, Jesus sends out the 72. And as they're going to preach, uh, one of the things that he says is, is that, you know, if, if they accept you, you're to give the blessing of peace to that place, right? So Borgman says that that whole first episode deals with this issue of the way of peace, that as Jesus and his disciples are going out and offering the kingdom, they're offering the way of peace. And that's really important given the introduction of Luke, because if you remember when the shepherds were told about the birth of Jesus uh, in Bethlehem, and then the great throng of the angelic choir appeared, right? The song uh, that they sang, right? Uh, Glory to God and peace among those upon whom his favor rests, Right? So this issue of peace is, a, is kind of a major thread that we've been tracing through uh, Luke. Now, we haven't gotten there yet, but if you look at the mirrored section of it, the very last line there, one with the uh, uh, apostrophe after it, 1835 through 1944, uh, this ends with Jesus lamenting the fact that the nation has rejected him. And one of the things that he says is, is that y'all have, uh, y'all have not done the things that make for peace. And you're not pursuing the things that make for peace. Right? So that theme of peace comes back around in that last section. But it's offered in the first time and now it's very clear that it's being rejected. 
Right? The way of peace is offered in Jesus, and now it's rejected at the end. And then, of course, the, the latter part of 19, we turn to the last week of his life, where he's going to be betrayed and crucified and so forth and so on. Uh, now, this is where it gets really cool. And when I saw this, I thought, ah, okay, he is definitely on to something. So that, that second line, 1025 through 42, and then the next to the last line, the, the two at the bottom with the little uh, ash, uh, uh, why can't I not ever think? I always want to call it a uh, apostrophe. Um, after it, uh, eighteen fifteen through thirty four, both of those uh, uh, episodes that are collected there center around this question where somebody asks Jesus, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And that's kind of at the center of everything that he talks about there. Oh wow! Okay, right. Then the next step down, line 3, 11, 1 through 13, that's where Jesus teaches on the way of prayer. That's where he gives the disciples prayer. And he talks about right uh, going and praying because our Father is going to give us what we ask for. That mirrors itself in the third step up from the bottom, 18, 1 through 14. Jesus teaches on prayer again. And so as I was working through this, and I spent several hours uh, over the weekend working through all these things. Uh, I think he's on to something here. And it really helps explain some of the ordering because wh- what happens is we are, today, we are in, we are in six, chapter 16 down here, right? And so you can see in chapter 16, the, the major theme is the way of relinquishing money and possessions, right? And so when you see that there and you see that, oh, wait a minute, this is not just a, a linear progression, but he's mirroring this with something that he's already talked about up here. Now, all of a sudden, okay, so these things aren't unrelated, right? He's developing this idea of relinquishing something on the way to Jerusalem. And so uh, you can, what I would encourage you to do is just, is just sit down at some point and just take each of these lines. So, you know, you take uh, uh, line number three, the way of prayer, read 11, uh, 1 through 13, and then jump down to the second number three down from the bottom, read that section on the way of prayer. And you'll be amazed at how those things are kind of talking about similar topics are brought together. So I really think that this guy's on to something here. Uh, because every commentary I read that says there's no rhyme or reason to this. Luke, imagine Luke sitting down to write this, right? And by the way, you remember in the very beginning, Luke said, most excellent Theophilus, I've sat down to put together an orderly account of what, right? Luke didn't sit down and say, well, I'm, we're just going to throw it out, right? We're going to roll the dice. Don't, it don't have to make no sense. It doesn't have to fit together. So, man, finding this was like a gold mine. In, in my mind, I, I thought, wow, okay, now, there really may be something going on here. Now, the point that I wanted to get to is that uh, if, if, if he's right in this organization, then the central part of this comes down on the line in 1323 through 30 and that's where Jesus gives the uh gives the teaching on enter by the narrow door there are very few that find it right do whatever you have to do to press into it right so everything that he's talked about the way of eternal life the way of prayer the way of the kingdom the way of non-hypocrisy the way of letting go of money and possessions the way of responsibility the way of repentance he tells the parables on the kingdom it all comes to that central point of you got to do whatever you can do possibly to find this narrow way and jesus is the narrow way right he is the door he is the one that everybody's going to reject and then as we move away he just repeats these ideas right uh, look at the look at line. This one is really interesting to me. Uh, line number eight, the way of repentance in twelve forty nine through thirteen seventeen. That one is really interesting because, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you what's there. Um, in twelve, uh, what did I say? Twelve forty nine. Yeah, twelve forty nine on down through thirteen seventeen. This is where Jesus starts with, "I came to bring peace." Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I came to bring a sword and not peace. I've come to be baptized with a thing. And then he tells the story about uh, interpreting the times. Settle with your accuser. Chapter 13 starts with, "Unless you repent, you're going to perish like all these people that we're talking about over here." Right. So you have that idea of what does it look like to really repent? And then he tells the parable of the barren pig, fig tree. 
of what's going to happen to them if they don't repent in time, right? So all those things swirl around the idea of repentance. And then you turn over to 14.1, and um, you get another series of parables about if you don't repent, you're not going to make it into the kingdom, right? So he, it, it's almost like in each of these, the, the, the first one in, in, the, in the first line down, he gives the teaching. And then in the second line down, he kind of gives the consequences for what happens if you don't listen to what he said the first time, right? So he's given the Pharisees numerous times to repent and turn away from their traditions and to follow him, and yet they don't. And so that's highlighted in the second part here. So I've, I've given you that because y'all can read through it and, and work through it. And this morning I was reading through it again and I thought, wow, I, I really think he's got something worked out here. Um, so anyway, um, I'll talk more about that as we go through each of these individual episodes where it might tie in and something might be significant. But um, anyway, I wanted to give that to y'all so, so y'all could work to, through it yourselves. Now, any questions or comments about that? I was... Talking fast and loud for a long time there. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's, let's, let's get into chapter 16. So in chap- we're in chapter 16. We're going to pick up in verse 19. Again, in your notes, that's on page 29 for you to take some notes there. Um, also, I, it was interesting how many of these things fell in line with the outline that I have for you in your notes here. Uh, Jesus teaches on sin, repentance, and, and faithfulness. And um, that is exactly what he's talking about in this whole section here. Uh, and, and also with the uh, handout that I just gave you. So we'll uh, talk about that as we go. Chapter 16, we've, we're, uh, this really it comes in the middle of several of uh, both parables and specific teaching that Jesus is doing that has to do with reversal. Um, and so he is developing, you know, these ideas that he's talked about um, several times up to this point, you know, where he says, behold, there are some who are last that will be first and some who are first who will be last. And so um, also everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Um, the, these parables all deal with issues of reversal. And um, in some ways, this parable that's in chapter 16, 19 through 31 um, is the ultimate uh, expression of that in one way or another. A very famous story that Jesus tells here uh, called the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Now, let me just say there's a huge debate over whether this is a parable or if Jesus is just telling a story that's for real and whatnot. My view is this is probably a parable because there's there's too many things in it that are meant to be representational, right? Uh, Lazarus, the poor man, represents the outcast that he's been talking about. Uh, the rich man who's not named uh, represents, right, Pharisees and right those who have it better in life and whatnot. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's also framed the way Jesus uh, frames a lot of his parables uh, where he says, now there was this rich man, right? So... Uh, now, l- let me just say this. Uh, what I'm not saying is that Jesus, this is just a made up story that's not about reality. That none, none of his parables are like that, right? So when he talks about the realities that are here, um, hell and, you know, the judgment to come and some of the things that he's talking about, he's clearly referring to real realities here, j- just as he does when he talks about seeds and soils and trees. Those are real things in the real world. That, that give us some understanding. So um, here, and, I, and we're just going to touch on some of the points of this. Y'all have, y'all have read this over and over again, probably heard a lot about it, and y'all know what happens here. Um, you have a rich man, verse 19, he's clothed in purple fine linen, feasted sumptuously every, every day. At his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus. Um, y'all may not, uh, some of you may know this, some of you may not, Lazarus, is the shorter form, is a shortened form of the Hebrew name Eleazar. Eleazar. And whenever I say the name Eleazar, if you remember your Old Testament history, there's several really significant Eleazars. Number one, one of them, one of the Eleazar, what, did anybody remember who one of the first Eleazars is? Son of Aaron is a big one. Yeah, there's Son of Aaron that takes over his priesthood. There's one before that, and that is Eleazar, who is the chief servant of Abraham, right? And, oh, and guess who's going to show up in this story here? 
Abraham, right? So that name is not picked by accident here, right? Um, and there's also a priest at the time of Nehemiah when they rebuild the walls, whose name is Eleazar. So um, Lazarus is a shortened form of that name. Uh, and the two people, notice the rich man doesn't have a name, but Lazarus and Abraham are named in it. So Jesus is making a very specific point about who's in and who's out. And of course, Lazarus would call up all these, you know, all these traditions from uh, the Hebrew scriptures where that name is held by some fairly significant characters uh, as we went through that. So here, Lazarus is there. He's covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Right, So he's, he's as bad off as he can get. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side, or traditionally that's been Abraham's bosom. Um, but the idea is that he's carried to Abraham's presence is, is the basic idea there. The rich man also died and he was buried and in Hades being in torment. Uh, Jesus uses two primary words for this place that we often refer to as hell. Uh, one is Gehenna that we've already looked at uh, in some previous chapters. But this is the word Hades in Greek, which is the underworld. It's the place of the dead. Uh, it's a place of darkness and shade. And um, Jesus talks about it being a place of torment here. So here he says he's in Hades. He's, he's in torment. And he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, and notice how Jesus says Abraham speaking here. Right. In other words, Abraham, the great representative of the Jewish people, he's their forefather. Right. Uh, Abraham speaks. Uh, Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then the rich man then said, I beg you, father, to send him to my brother's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father, Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Right. There's our issue of repent. What's it going to take him to repent? And here's the stinger, verse 31. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. All right. Now this, this uh, again, you, you have the reversal, right? Uh, the poor man, Lazarus, uh, he is welcomed into the presence of Abraham. The rich man who had it all, he is in Hades. He's in hell. In torment, right? And this is, uh, like we said, this is tying in to what Jesus uh, has been building on uh, up until this point. And that is, if you've got money, you should use it to help people while you're here. Because you can't use it after you're gone, right? Notice, the rich man can't buy himself out of hell, right? Like evil can evil last week. You can't buy your way into heaven and you can't spend it in hell, right? Same thing here. The rich man can't buy his way out of hell. It's doing him no good whatsoever, right? Uh, in the world to come, money is irrelevant. Praise Jesus for that. Y'all think about that for a little bit. Um, so here, uh, the money is of no use to him, and he could have used it to help Lazarus, but he doesn't. And so now, here he is in hell and in torment. And so the whole, this whole, uh, this whole exchange goes for the finality. You know, Lazarus is where he is. The rich man is where he is. There's a great gulf between them. Even if, one, even if Lazarus wanted to, he can't get to the rich man, right? There, a lot of people um, take this and say that this confirms the idea that this is, Jesus sees the dead as the underworld. And like the Greeks did, it's got different compartments in it. And one big compartment has the righteous in it. And another compartment has the wicked in it, right? But if you notice the vision or the view that Jesus has here, uh, the rich man is in torment. And where, where does he do? He looks up, right? And there he sees Lazarus with Abraham, 
right? So there's not this sense that they're in the same place. And there's this great chasm that's transfixed between them so that they can't get from one to the other, right? So Jesus has some really interesting imagery that he pulls out here. And it's probably, you know, uh, trying to explain as best he can this eternal separation uh, that exists for those who are going to wind up in hell in Hades and those who are going to be in the presence of the fathers. Uh, by the way, I'll just mention this as well. Y'all know um, in the Old Testament, particularly in, in Genesis, when somebody like Abraham died, it, it would say he was gathered to his fathers. And then uh, Abraham's family, when they died, he was gathered to his fathers. So the idea there is that, you know, in the afterlife, you will be gathered into the presence of the faithful, the faithful family that you were part of. And so Jesus kind of uh, has that front and center here as, as Lazarus is gathered to Abraham's side in that. But then this guy, he, the, you know, the rich man wants to send, <laughs> uh, number one, he wants some water. He, well, you can't get that. And then he wants to send somebody back to warn his five brothers so that they won't wind up in this place of torment. And here's the critical statement. Verse 29, Abraham, and notice, this is the genius. This is the genius of Jesus' teaching. He puts these words in the mouth of Abraham, right? Abraham lived years and years and years before Moses and the law, (laughs) right? But in his consciousness, right, in where he is in this parable, he says to them, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, and by the way, Moses and the prophets, that was a way of referring to the whole Old Testament, uh, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets. You see that in the New Testament quite a bit. And that's the way the Jews thought of their whole Old Testament. So what, what Abraham is saying to this man here, listen, he's got the scriptures. Let him listen to him, to them, right? And then he, he begs him, verse 30, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, Abraham says to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now think about that for a minute, right? I mean, where are we headed with this, right? Jesus, in a sense, is illuminating the law and the prophets for the people, right? He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And yet, what are the people doing? They're rejecting him, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers and the Pharisees, the way Luke calls them here, right? They're rejecting Jesus. But as Jesus is teaching, he's simply directing them back that I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, right? And so they're not paying attention to that. Everything that they studied should have pointed that this, you know, Jesus is the one who he claims to be, and yet they reject it. And so here the last thing that he says in it is, even if somebody comes back from the dead, they're not going to believe it, right? And that's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. Even after his resurrection, the nation is still going to wholesale, for the most part, reject Jesus. You're going to have a remnant of the people that believe in him. But by and large, the nation as a whole is going to continue to reject him. Not even somebody coming back from the dead is going to be enough to convince them. Oh, yeah. And and, and by the way, let me just ask you this. In Jesus' ministry, how many people do we have that have come back from the dead at this point? Two, right? He's already raised two people from the dead. And in John, we know that later he raises Lazarus from the dead. Guy who has the same name as the dude in this parable here, right? And it's not, it's not, we're not to imply that that is Lazarus here. Uh, I, just, I don't think it's that he mentioned that he intends for us to think that that's Lazarus over in John because Lazarus uh, doesn't show up in that context here. But uh, yeah, you've got people that have been raised from the dead that are alive it, during the time of Jesus' ministry that anybody could go and ask him, what happened to you? Well, I don't know. I was dead and now I'm back. Well, how did that happen? Well, I got Jesus. I don't know. You know, so there's evidence, you know, but even with the evidence of somebody coming back from the dead, they're still rejecting him. Right. And so this is a warning. If, if you look on the chart again that I just gave you, we're in uh, we're about to be in chapter 17 uh, in uh, 16, 1 through 31. That's the that's the part we're in. Um, this comes under the larger idea of the way of relinquishing money and possessions, right? You shouldn't let money get a hold of you, right? And so even in this parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the man is distracted by his wealth. 
He thinks that he's got everything he needs. And by the way, let me just emphasize again, in this culture, people often traditionally assume that if somebody was wealthy, it's because they were under God's blessing. They were righteous and had done what is right to have merited God's overwhelming favor. It's the early version of the health and wealth gospel. You know, that's on every channel where you got a TV preacher nowadays, right? Just come and brah my prayer cloth that I sneezed on personally. And if you pray the right prayer and you do the right things, then the Lord's going to bless you and you're going to be prosperous, right? Um, a lot of those people are going to wind up right here with this dude in Hades. A lot of those, right? Uh, in, in Dante's Inferno, he was not wrong to populate hell with the religious and particularly the preachers and the teachers <laughs> within religion, right? Uh, oh, my goodness. Um, so here, this, uh, this parable, in a sense, um, uh, really emphasizes and hones in on several of these key themes that he's been developing, right? Don't get distracted by wealth and riches. As he said just a little bit earlier, you can't serve two masters. Either you'll love one and hate the other. Uh, and so this rich man serving his, his wealth, distracted by the poor man Lazarus who's right in front of him that he should have been taken care of, right? And then also you've got these uh, other things of you've got to be very careful to listen to the word of God and do it. The Lord's already told you what to do in Moses and the prophets. And if they reject that, then what else can we give them? Right? If they won't even listen to that. And so a lot of these themes that Jesus has been building on uh, kind of come to a head and are illuminated uh, in this in this story here. Really, really powerful. You know, this is one of the best known of Jesus um, Jesus teachings here. Now, anybody, any questions or comments on that? Yeah. yeah. I've often wondered about the finger in the water. Yeah, yeah. It's a parallel to the scraps that Lazarus was asking for. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, Abraham talking here will completely debunk the idea that the Sadducees there's no afterlife. Exactly. One of the things, too, is, uh, you know, Luke has uh, put, put his uh, gospel together in the order that he has. But one of the really, and I, let me finish that statement, put it in the order he has to make his points to his audience. But one of the really fascinating things is if you look at a harmony of the gospels, where it takes the whole story and shows probably where this happened in Jesus' ministry and how it fits together in the larger thing, then clearly a lot of these things overlap. You know, his... Uh, his wrangling with, with the Sadducees, Luke doesn't even mention the Sadducees. You know, that's something Marth, Matthew and Mark do with. But this clearly probably takes place in, the, in a larger debate that he's having with the Sadducees. You know, <laughs> oh Lord, he just drives them crazy with this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Anybody else, any questions or, or comments on that? All right, chapter 17. Um, now, this would be one of those places where... Um, Boy, what in the world is going on here? Uh, 17 is, is the place where most of the um, commentators say uh, these next four episodes are just haphazard. They don't ha- I can't discern why they're here and whatnot. But if, again, if you look on our little chart, seven, chapter 17, verses 1 through 19, that's the second number five, five prime uh, with the um, uh, check mark after it. Uh, down toward the bottom there. Jesus is talking about the way of non-hypocrisy, right? So not being a hypocrite. If you look at the parallel back up in 11:33 through 12:2, that's where Jesus ties into the Pharisees and the scribes and says, hey, y'all have all these burdens and yet you won't lift one finger to help anybody else. And then he warns the crowds, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, right? So here... Uh, all of these things have, have things to do with um, re- uh, rejecting hypocrisy. And I would even say it this way. Now, not only are you rejecting hypocrisy, but what does it look like to be faithful? Right? So not to follow the way of the scribes and the Pharisees in the hypocrisy, but what does faithfulness look like? So 17.1, this seems to come out of nowhere. Now, he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, um, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Look, look at that, one of these little ones. Right? 
we're going to come back and talk about that a little bit later. One of the little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And by the way, that seven times a day, if you go look at a, uh, a parallel to this teaching, uh, Peter uh, comes to Jesus and says, right, hey, Lord, how many times should we forgive somebody? Up to seven times, right? Yeah. Boy, that, that's good, seven times. And, Jesus, and you remember what Jesus says? No, not seven, 70 times seven, right? In other words, there's no end to how many times you've got to forgive, right? Forgiveness is an ongoing thing here, right? Uh, so, so here, Jesus, number one, he teaches on the temptations to sin are sure to come. Again, that's parallel to him uh, tying into the Pharisees earlier and talking about weighing up burdens. And some of his other teaching, uh, Jesus talks about them as putting stumbling blocks before people so they can't find their way into the kingdom. In fact, one of the things that Jesus, uh, Jesus says to them specifically um, as he is dealing with that at, at the end, he says, um, this is in 1152, so part of that uh, parallel passage. He says, woe to you lawyers or scribes, for you have taken away the kingdom of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees have become the very stumbling blocks, the people that are bringing the temptations to sin that Jesus is talking about here. Right? Um, and he says, for those type of people, it'd be better that a great millstone hung around your neck and cast into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Um, so the little ones, um, earlier, Jesus has said several things about uh, small things, uh, a lot of little things. Uh, earlier, one of the more important statements he said is, oh, yeah, I'm going to go further back. Back in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain, he had said, wait, went too far. Uh, he had said, oh, no, 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 no. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm going, it's in the, uh, where he's talking about being anxious, uh, not chapter 6. Uh, if you look back where he gives the sermon on not being anxious in chapter 12, verse 32, he says, um, down in the middle of that, he says, fear not, little flock, little flock, right, same word there, little flock, right, little things. Flock is not in the other text that we're looking at, but the little part. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right. So these little ones that Jesus is talking about are all of the down and out people that he's calling into his kingdom. Right. The lepers and the uh, people who are sick and those who are lame and the tax collectors and the sinners. Right. Those are all the little ones. And then he's and then uh, not only should we not lead people into sin, but as long uh, as we can. You need to forgive your brother who sins, right? Uh, forgiveness is absolutely critical in the followers of Jesus. Paul uh, takes this later in his letters, and he really amps it up, you know, in several places. I think three different times he'll say, and just as the Lord Jesus has forgiven you, so you must forgive one another. He doesn't even make it an option. Right? Forgiveness is not an option for a follower of Jesus. And this is the reason. If Jesus has forgiven you, how can you not forgive somebody else? A, 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 a story I've told several times, and I'll make it shorter here today. Uh, one of my f- first time teaching at Crichton College, back after I got out of seminary, I think it was the second class I taught, there was a, a young girl who sat up really close to the front, she was uh, missing an eye. She had like an eye patch. She was missing part of her arm. She walked with a limp, uh, had some serious physical things going on. And uh, every night, just taking notes, never ask a question or anything. The next to the ne- last night of class, we, we were talking about issues of forgiveness. And I had uh, somebody raise a question about forgiveness, you know, where Jesus says, uh, if you don't forgive, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Right. Again, this idea that forgiveness is absolutely mandatory. And so uh, after that class, she left a note just up on the podium. And when I got home and I read it and long story short, she said, you know, um, I don't even know where to begin, but uh, you've probably seen I've got some issues. Right. And what happened to me was my father killed my mother, shot my mother with a shotgun and my brother and my sister. And he was trying to kill me. 
before somebody stopped him. And that's why I lost my arm and my eye and all this. And she says, I only have one question. If I don't forgive my father, will God not forgive me? So I go to my father-in-law, right? Dallas Theological Seminary. Hey, uh, I got this question in class tonight. And all that money they made me pay at seminary, they did not prepare me for this one. Right? We didn't go over this in class at all. So I showed him the note and he said, son, this question has come to you. <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you what. I prayed, Lord Jesus, you, you got to help me. How do I answer this girl? Right. Because the way I answer her is either going to push her closer to Jesus or drive her away. Right. This is not one of those stupid questions about election and human things. Right. This is something where 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 somebody's commitment to the Lord is on the line. Right. This is a serious, serious question. So I prayed about it and I prayed about it and I prayed about it. And so finally, I, I wrote, her, wrote her note back, put it on her desk. And I said, listen, I can't answer this question for you, but do this. Finish the class with me. And by the way, this class was Introduction to Theology. So it was basically about the gospel from Genesis all the way through Jesus, even into Revelation. So we're going through everything that God's done for us and in us and to us and through us and all that. So I told her, I said, just finish the class with me. And let's pray together that the Lord will help you know what you need to do. And so she did, never said anything else to me. Last night of class, she left another note on my, on my podium. And the note said, if Jesus has forgiven me for so much, how can I not forgive my father? Wow. Right? And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I didn't even have to answer that question. Right? <laughs> that, was, that was really one of the first times in my life where I felt like, wow, he really showed up. You know, he really showed up in a powerful way, you know. And and so here, you know, Jesus is very uh, strong on this issue of forgiveness. It's one of the things that defines us as believers. And that's one of the things that's been so shocking to me about the era of COVID, about how believers uh, online claim to be Christians and say some of the most vile things that show an attitude of unmercy and unforgiveness. And I think you are in great danger. That is blasphemy. It is blasphemy to call on the name. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. To say, I belong to Jesus and act in a way that's completely contrary to Jesus. That is what will wind you up in Hades like this rich man. They are in grave danger. And this is why they don't know Jesus. You simply do not know Jesus. Right? And I call some people out on that. I would say, listen, you need to get right with Jesus. I don't think you know Jesus. You need to get to know him. Because if you knew him, you would know that he calls us to something better than that. Right? So he is serious about these things. Sue, you have your hand up. <clears throat> yeah. It's kind of like, that is righteous anger. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But people do get through that. They do get through it. Yeah, they do get through it. And, you know, uh, this is going to sound crazy, and you all have heard this, but, you know, forgiveness is not just given uh, for the people that we extend forgiveness to. Forgiveness is primarily for the one who forgives. In a, in a very major way. Now, I'm saying it, it affects both people, right? But it's the old saying of bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking poison, thinking the other person dies, right? But when I forgive somebody of something, that means I, 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 I can be released from this. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to be mad about it. I don't have to be upset about it. That's between them and the Lord. I'm going to let them take it up, right? I can release you. I can be free of it, you know? And that, that's a powerful thing. And let me suggest something. The reality of that is only by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's something we can do. Like, like that young lady I just talked about, she was only able to do that because the Holy Spirit was working on her, right? Doing things in and through her that my teaching, and, and let me just, now y'all know what I'm saying, not just reading the Bible, right? You can read the Bible all day and not do what it says, right? Jesus makes a big point about that. It's through the Spirit working in and through her to do those kind of things, you know? I mean, Jesus sets a high standard for us, and it's hard, yeah. But you have to be nice to him after you Well, <laughs> let me say, within the, within, within the body of Christ, the goal is always forgiveness and reconciliation, you know, to have things working together. And, and uh, sometimes you need to pray that the Lord will take people through whatever he needs to take them through so they'll wake up and quit acting like a jack wagon, right? 
So that's a reality too. <laughs> Uh, all right, y'all. Uh, Seventeen five. Immediately, notice this is one of the uh, people. People say, "I don't understand." I, again, I'm reading commentators, and, and and they read this next statement. And they think, "I don't understand why they said that." Verse five. Now, the apostles. This is, I think, the third time that the twelve are referred to as the apostles here. So this is the inner. These are the inner disciples, right? The twelve. The apostles said to the Lord, "Increase our faith." They think. Why do they need their faith increase? Did you not hear what he just said? Right? You are to forgive people limitlessly is basically what Jesus is saying. Now, if you don't need to be trusting him and have faith in him for that, right? Everything we just talked about uh, highlights what a big deal that is, right? So here the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. And then he gives the statement, one of his famous statements. Verse 6, the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, remember he had already just told a parable about the kingdom being like a mustard seed, tiny, little bitty. If you had faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, clearly this is one of Jesus' Uh, hyperbolic teachings. He's overstating the case, right? He's, he's making the point that that just, you don't have to have a lot of faith, just a very little bit, right? You got to have just a little bit of trust and these things can happen. And that's going to be magnified as we go forward. But immediately with that, and I, and I don't want to miss the punch on this. Uh, I, this is one of my favorite um, things that Jesus teaches right here in this area. Uh, notice what he says immediately, verse 7. He says, now, will, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress appropriately and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward, then you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant? And by the way, the word here is slave, Right. If you have a slave, is what Jesus is wanting us to read that as. This is a servant that belongs to you, right? He's indentured to you, is the idea. Verse 9, um, does he, now verse, this is the kicker. Does he thank the servant, the slave, because he did what he was commanded? Verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what we were supposed to. Ooh. Whoa. whoa. Wait a minute. Now, what now? Right? Now, of course, this is, this is one of the places where Jesus is making it very clear that He is the Lord and we are His servants. Right? And this is also one of the, one of the places where I think Paul and Peter and the other apostles that, that write in the New Testament, as you know, all of those men when they introduce themselves in their letters, Paul almost always says, and he says it in this order, a slave and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most important thing he wants you to know about him is not that he's an apostle. That's important. But first of all, that he is Jesus' slave. He belongs to Jesus. Now, all right, culturally, we got a lot of baggage with that kind of idea. You know, people get bent out of shape about that. But, I mean, the reality is, with everything that Jesus is teaching, He wants us to clearly understand that if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to belong to me. You're going to be mine. And, and by the way, that's what we mean when we say the Lord Jesus. <laughs> right? It, it, that literally means that He is Lord and we are His servants. We belong to Him. Now, He is a good, he is a good Lord. He's a good Master. He's good, he's gracious, he's just, right? He's not unfair. He doesn't beat us down. And so when we serve him, we serve him willingly, like, like, like a bond servant, like a bond slave, you know, that, we, that we're giving our devotion to him because of his goodness. And so uh, here, Jesus highlights some of that that's going to get magnified as we go forward. But the important thing here is, again, this is smacking right at the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Everything they do, they're doing because they think they're getting an upper hand with God and that God is going to need to owe them something. Right? Boy, look, God, look at what I've done. I've tithed all this. I've kept the law. Right now it's your turn. 
And Jesus is saying, no, 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 wait, that's not the way this works. You can't do anything that makes God beholden to you. That's not the way this whole thing operates, right? Instead, when you've done everything that's necessary, you just say, we're just slaves. We just did what we were supposed to. Now, man, now that is so that we're going to see the implications of this play out. But what Jesus destroys there is this idea that he's been picking away at is that you really can't do anything to earn anything from God, to put him right at your convenience, right? It's not at all what's going on here. Something else entirely. And boy, howdy, I'll tell you what, that's a good one to remember. Um, and that, that one's hard to apply, right? But that's what non-hypocrisy looks like. It's that we know who we are in the presence of God, right? We are his servants. We belong to him. And um, we, we serve him. He is under no mandate to serve us first. Now, a really interesting thing. <laughs> Let me check this out. This is, this is why I love this. If you look back to where Jesus was teaching on the reality of the kingdom and, and the, the, the coming of the kingdom. Back in chapter 12, a really interesting thing. It's almost the exact opposite of this. Chapter 12, verse, verse 35. Chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus says there, uh, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Verse 37. Now, look at this. This thing you need to underline. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. You see that? exact opposite of what Jesus just said in the parable. And this is talking about the coming of the kingdom, right? When the kingdom comes and when the king arrives, all the servants that he finds that are faithful, he himself is going to become the servant and take care of all the people that are his, right? Uh, Jesus in the, um, we'll get to this in Luke, but y'all know in the uh, upper room on the night of his betrayal, they have the last supper, It's the last Passover of the old age. And Jesus institutes this new Passover for his followers. And one of the last things that he says to them is, as they take one of the last cups, right after he said, you know, this is this this cup is the blood of my covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right. Trying to help them understand what's about to happen. And then at the end, he says uh, of this cup, I will drink it no longer until I drink it with you all in my father's kingdom. Right. Jesus is looking forward to that day right there when he comes, the kingdom comes and he's going to serve his people, all of his faithful people. Jesus, the king, will serve us at his table. Now, get your mind around that. That's why we become slaves who serve him right freely and openly. And we count it as a privilege to serve him as slaves because he is our king who when the kingdom comes, he is going to serve us. And we know that, right? And we know that because he's already done it on the cross. And if he's willing to do that, then serving us some good food in the kingdom, that seems like just a little thing to be doing, right? Uh, so just incredible. Oh, I love the, love the complexity of, of these things that Jesus teaches, right? Uh, the ins and outs of all of it. But, but that one, the one about being, you know, consider ourselves to be servants who've just done what we're supposed to do. That's a really important mindset. Uh, now, any, any questions or, or comments on that so far? Yes, Sheila? Um, I think maybe you pray and pray and pray, and Jesus, uh, maybe you're sick and then you're off again. Yeah. Pray again, please. Help yeah. Us yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes he heals someone. So they can go out and tell other people. Absolutely. Gracious and merciful God. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I that I think about in different contexts always is that we we have been blessed to be a blessing to others. Not for ourselves. Just and you know, and I think about this in so many different ways. This is kind of far off the far off the subject, but 
uh, in talking about the spiritual gifts, right? The Spirit has given gifts to everybody within the body of Christ, not to serve ourselves, but to serve everybody else, right? So I think I've been given the gift of teaching, and that, that gift is not for me. That's for all the other members of the body of Christ, right? And, and also, the, the Lord, along with that gift, He often gives us, uh, what's the equivalent of, of Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? Because there is not a day that I stop. Uh, t- today at 12.02, I'll be walking down this hall and I'll think, Lord, that was awful. Why couldn't you have picked somebody who could do this better? You know? So there, there, there's always the sense that the Lord has blessed us so we can be a blessing to others, but also cultivating the sense of humility, right? And I'm going to tell you what, I, now, y'all, this is terrible, but I've seen so many people that I'll hear preaching or teaching and I'll lean over to a friend and I'll say, I give him five years and he's going to be out because he thinks too highly of himself, right? And boy, you can tell when somebody thinks too highly of yourself, first thing the Lord Jesus got to do is teach you this. You're just a slave and you need to understand you're only doing what you were supposed to do. This ain't about you, boy, right? And in the same way, he brings healing and restoration, right, to those who are down and out, and through those people who've gone through suffering. Oh gosh, well then they're the people who come to us and give us hope, you know. And you know, I, I've, I've said this before, but I, one of the one of the one of the great things that I think is a great tragedy in the modern church is we don't have an opportunity for people to get up in front of everybody and give testimony of how the Lord is working in their lives. When I was growing, I'll end with this. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up next week in chapter 17, verse 11. So y'all read chapter 17 and 18 for next week. We'll, we'll make a short work out of that. Uh, just do some summary stuff. But w- when I was growing up in church on, on Sunday nights, there would be a time at the beginning of the service where you'd sing and prayer. And then there'd be a time for people to give witness, you know, to give a testimony. And they would get up and they would tell about what the Lord had done. You know, oh gosh, I've been an alcoholic for 12 years. I can't get past it. And fi- I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. She liked saying, finally, the Lord has given me breakthrough. You know, anyway, I, can't rem- I, I can't tell you any sermon that I heard growing up that impacted me, really. I mean, I can't repeat it. Because the church I grew up in, you know, we, we had different pastors that would come to us. And there was only one, well, two in my time frame that actually preached from the Bible. You know, the rest of them got up and read a passage and then just said whatever they wanted to say. Y'all, y'all know how that kind of thing works. But the thing that hit me was on Sunday nights when those people would get up and tell those stories, I would leave that and I would think, this stuff is real. This, this is for real. That guy on Sunday morning, he's just making up stuff, but this is real. Right? There is something about this Jesus thing, right? And even in times where I wanted to walk away from all of this and say, you know, I tried the Jesus thing, I'm going to move. Right? He wouldn't let you go because of that. Because you'd seen people that had been, that been touched and healed and right? uh, restored, whatever he did. And I just think it's a great shame that we don't do any things like that. No, we've got we to turn on some loud music and deafen everybody and... You know, get up and do all the entertainment, and, and we never get to hear any. We, we don't even hear one another sing anymore. You know, oh Lord, it, it's just. And I think, well, this is why we're all fragmented and divided, because nobody knows that. Hey, wait a minute, Jesus is real and He's powerful and He's doing something, <laughs> and it ain't the stuff that's happening on stage, right? Very rarely is anything happening on stage. Oh gosh, all right, I'm on soapbox. I'm gonna stop. Uh, let me let me pray for us before you. <laughs> Let me pray for us before I get smoked. Um, and if, if anybody has any questions, I'll be happy to stick around and talk here a little bit after class. But let me go ahead and dismiss us. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us and sustain us and carry us along and do all the things that you do through us and to us and in us and every other preposition we can think of. Uh, it's really all about you. And, and we are. Uh, we are simply your servants. We belong to you. Our Lord Jesus has purchased us at the cost of his own blood. And even when we've done everything that's commanded, we realize that we've only done what we were supposed to do in the first place. And uh, because of that, every blessing that comes to us is through your mercy and through your grace and through your goodness, that you are a, a great and gracious and loving Heavenly Father who gives us better than what we can ask or think for. 
And uh, even though sometimes uh, we feel like we struggle in the midst of those things, we know that ultimately you are working everything together for our good to conform us to the image and the likeness of our Lord Jesus. And in the time when we're finally like him in his uh, goodness and in his uh, ability to be focused on the things that only bring pleasure to you, we know that we'll be free, truly free. Uh, And we also know that that day won't come entirely until we see him face to face. So we pray constantly and asking uh, for you to continue to guide us and direct us and give us the things that we need. But we also pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in his uh, awesome name that we ask all this. Amen.